it's wonderful to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. Right now, we're all about helping you hold on to every dollar you have. Now, we've had questions from people about every type of event that you may have paid for that now isn't happening and you haven't been able to get money back in a lot of cases. Well, what's happened is that is the focus moves from one type of organization to another, you know, Ticketmaster getting pounded and now finally agreeing to make refunds for events that aren't taking place. Now the attention turned to baseball. Baseball that is supposed to be in the throes of completing its first month of the season without a game in sight. And now the likeliest outcome is uh, Major League Baseball in the United States will follow what's going on in Asia, which is playing games in empty stadiums as TV events. Major League Baseball has now put out communication to the, I think there are 30 Major League teams, on the procedures for making refunds, because baseball fans have desperately been trying to get refunds. Think about if you're unemployed and you paid all that money for a season ticket, that money would come in very handy, and you'll start hearing over the next probably three to five days procedures from each major league team how you'll be able to get a refund. And so as to whether they're going to refund part of the season or do it in one-month chunks as each month doesn't happen, that's unknown at this time. It's just great they're doing it. And we had so many questions from people who had received stimulus checks for now-deceased loved ones. And initially, the word was that that money would not have to be paid back. There was new guidance issued by the U.S. Department of the Treasury uh, yesterday afternoon that stimulus checks received for dead people do need to be paid back. And we're going to post a briefing on Clark.com once the procedure is established for how you'll pay that money back. One of the news stories I read yesterday was about a woman saying that she had repeatedly tried to find out from the IRS how to return the money and couldn't even reach anybody. So as soon as we know a procedure, we'll post that for you. And I'll mention here on the show that the instructions are now available to return that money. Now, unemployment compensation is so important right now with tens of millions of Americans unemployed, the highest unemployment rates since the Great Depression in the 1930s. And the state of Florida is now the biggest fail in the United States at getting unemployment compensation to its citizens, and no other state is close. Uh, USA Today posted an analysis from the Associated Press that found that uh, Florida unemployment compensation just isn't getting paid. In fact, most Floridians can't even get through online or on the phone to start an application, even of those who have been able to file an application. Seven out of eight who've been waiting as much as five weeks have not been able to get a penny of their unemployment compensation. 
it is a scandal that the state of Florida has failed its citizens so horrendously badly. And the governor has gone radio silent. I think it's time for the governor of Florida to stand up and apologize to the people of Florida and come up with a clear plan because everything they've tried so far has been an absolute fail at getting unemployment compensation to people. I read an interesting story in the LA Times about what California faces with the largest number of people in the United States who are independent contractors, gig workers, and self-employed who are eligible under the Coronavirus Relief Act for unemployment compensation, who usually would not be, the number of people in California unemployed in that kind of category almost equals the number of traditional W-2 employees who are unemployed. And California has been able to process unemployment fairly okay for traditional workers, but where they've really fallen down on the job is with this massive number of millions of people who work as independent contractors, gig workers, or self-employed, getting unemployment compensation to them. And in smaller states, the second part of that has also been a problem. Uh, More and more states are now getting money to gig workers and self-employed and independent contractors, but it's still been the weakest link in how unemployment compensation has worked. Now, one of the craziest things is that when the money starts flowing, 47% of people is the estimate who will ultimately start getting their unemployment will make more on unemployment because of the $600 a week federal supplement for four months. During those four months, 47% of people will make more not working than they do working. And that, in my mind, is not a healthy thing. But it is the law, and it may mean that a certain number of people will try to stay out of work because they're making more money not working. And that's not how unemployment should work. It should not create an incentive for people not to work versus work, but it was the wisdom of Congress and the president to do that, and it's how it's going to work through the end of July. Ultimately, after July, when unemployment goes back to just the amount states pay, those are very small amounts of money that states pay, and people will have an extra incentive to go back to work. So we are answering your questions by you posting on clark.com slash ask and producers Kim and Joel are asking your questions for you. And Kim, who's up first? Today first up is Corey and he says, I work in sports television and I don't see my job returning anytime soon. I have the money in my account to pay my mortgage for a few months, but I decided to ask my bank to freeze my payments so I could stockpile a bit of money. I asked if the payments could be put on the back end of the loan, and they said, don't worry, we'll figure all that out when the three months are up. Should I be trusting them that we can actually figure all this out? Should I be worried that they'll do the right thing? 
So it's not they're doing the right thing. It's what they're required to do. Almost all mortgage loans are underwritten behind the curtain by the feds. And under the federal um, guidance to mortgage lenders, they are supposed to say kind of mamby-pamby stuff to you about how you'd make up the months that you get forbearance. But in the, in the reality of the guidance, you're not expected to come up with a lump sum unless you can afford to. That's basically, I'm quoting, I'm paraphrasing, that's almost exactly what the guidance says. If you are in a position where you have the money at the end of a multi-month forbearance to write a check and come current, you're supposed to do that. Otherwise, the mortgage lender or mortgage servicer is supposed to work out a payment plan with you that won't be too difficult or put the months at the back end of your loan to be made up at the very end of 15 or 30 years. Joel? Clark Brandon says, my mother said she went to see her loan officer yesterday to do an application for the PPP loan, and they told her that the money has run out again. Is that true? Not true. Now, if she went to a giant monster megabank, it's possible that the giant monster megabank, because of the things the big banks did wrong the first time, the banks are under a tight collar, the big banks, to make sure they don't uh, behave so terribly in the second round like they did the first, where the money very heavily was given only to favored uh, publicly traded company borrowers or big businesses that just had loopholes that allowed them to fit underneath. So the big banks are tightly controlled on how many loans they could do. In terms of the overall initial additional third of a billion trillion dollars running out, I've not seen any signs yet that that has happened, although it is likely to happen in about a week's time, some more or less, from when things opened up this past Monday. The answer for your mom is she needs to go find a non-traditional lender, as many are doing these loans now, people like PayPal, Cabbage, any of a number of non-traditional business lenders, a small local community bank, or a credit union doing the loans. She should not beat her head against the wall dealing with some big bank that said, no more money for you. And Kim, who do you have a question from? This is from Michael. He says, my lease is coming up and the landlord has offered me a renewal, either six months or 12 months, but the new lease will include a rent increase. I'm not sure I want to try to move during a pandemic, but I'm wondering if there may be better options for me if I was willing to move. Do you have any advice on how I could weigh this decision? Yeah, you already said it in your question, and that is immediately start surveying what's available in the marketplace as a place you might move. And one of the things you can do with your existing landlord, they do not want a vacancy right now is that you say, hey, you know, I'll move if you want me to, and I found much cheaper rent here, 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 and here. Or um, if you're willing to rethink the rent increase, then I'm willing to stay with you. But you have to be willing to pick up and move if you uh, play that game of chicken with your landlord. But the only way you have power in this transaction is if you do survey what else is out there? 
And there are going to be a number of situations where people do let their leases expire, uh, move in with family or friends or whatever because of the unemployment caused by coronavirus. And that increases your opportunity as you shop around to find potentially a better deal. Joel? Clark CJ says, I have $27,000 in credit card debt at 13.5% interest. I have $75,000 in my 401k and ten dollars in my emergency fund. So should I do a 401k withdrawal to pay off the credit card debt? So, you know, I never like for someone to take a loan against a 401k, even though it's much lower interest than the 27 on the credit card debt. I think you said 13% interest? Yeah, 13, 13 and a half. Okay. So when you have a situation where you're looking, you say, hey, I can borrow from my 401k at 4, 5, 6% instead of paying 13%. The problem ultimately, particularly in a time where we're in a declining stock market overall, is that you're going to miss, have that $27,000 not in the market for what will ultimately be a recovery in it. Now, I don't want you to take your 10000 in reserve and put it towards the credit card debt because you need reserve funds right now. So if you really, really are determined to do this, let's, let's cut this in half and take 13.5 from your 401k I'm compromising with you here, and I don't like the compromise. Put it towards the credit card debt, and then at least you will have reduced heavily how much credit card debt you have. Maybe you'll be in a position to pay more every month towards the remaining thirteen five. And if you're still employed in that 401k plan, you're still employed by that employer, borrow from the plan. Don't withdraw the money. Then you create no tax burden for yourself at all. In place of a Clark rage, we're doing a Clark rave each day at this time where we talk about something positive going on at a time that, well, it feels kind of heavy. And today, I want to talk about Angelina Friedman. If you've not heard about her, you've heard me, if you've been listening regularly over our coverage the last couple of months, you've heard me talk a lot about the 1918-1919 Spanish flu that killed 50 million people around the world. Well, actually, it's estimated 50 to 100 million. Nobody knows exactly. And how it was dealt with in that era and how much better off we are now because of the science and medicine we have today. But Angelina Friedman is 101 years old and she was alive during the 1918 Spanish flu and she has survived so many things cancer internal bleeding sepsis two epidemics can you imagine and she just overcame coronavirus so She's got a wonderful smile on her face. Who wouldn't? I mean, think about everything that she has survived. And now here she is ready to fight another day. As one of the kids said about her mom, she's not human. She has superhuman DNA. 
there are many stories about this uplifting thing with Angelina. You can find them if you Google Angelina Friedman. I'm looking right now at a story from CNN that has a lot of quotes from people about it. And the staff threw a big birthday party for her in her assisted living facility. And she's got a crown on her head, a big smile. And how neat that somebody has survived not one, but two pandemics and is still here to tell the tale. I'm so glad you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our hardworking team at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com are doing everything they can to give you information that helps you stretch every dollar and hold on to the ones you have. So that's so important right now because... We have a medical emergency that's led to a severe economic problem here in the United States and around the world. And the data is just in on what happened with the economy in the first quarter. And what happened in the first quarter is really not a true representation. It shows a decline of economic activity of about 5%. The real number since coronavirus really, really affected us, is much, much higher. And it is an ugly event right now. Looking at numbers of decline, the lowest they've been, or worst they've been since 1980, and if this goes on much longer, we start looking like certain phases of the Great Depression. So, the U.S. economy right now is probably about 25% smaller than it was a year ago at this time. And that trends close to the percent that are unemployed. So I want to tell you, there may be a little higher than the percent unemployed, but there are similar ranges that do not take from this some of the scary headlines that I've been reading about how the economy of the United States and around the world is headed towards or is already in a deep, deep depression. That's not the story of this. And don't take that to the bank. There is something, though, that is legit and real. And that is that voluntarily, even people that are still employed and not worried about staying employed are spending less money. There is a new uh, fear that we have to hold on to the money we have, and that actually increases the impact on the economy when people who are in a position who could continue to spend choose not to. But, you know, I think that's a rational decision, a rational choice, because we don't know how long this thing has to run. We don't know how long people voluntarily are going to say, you know, I really don't want to go out and do this, that, or the other. Because a lot of what we're talking about is even as states, uh, quote-unquote, reopen around the country, a lot of it is personal decisions where people choose not to do a particular thing. Many of those choices are very rational because people... Don't say, yippee, 
I want to get coronavirus today. So one of the things we have to do, and we'll get there, we're not there yet, is to have clear procedures in each of the 50 states where we use methods that have been successful in other countries where we can monitor closely how many people are getting ill and we know like the accordion example I've been giving when we can loosen up economies more or when we have to tighten down some to keep the number of people becoming infected and and the number of people who end up needing hospitalization and care that doesn't overwhelm the system and the testing thing has been an ultra weak link here in the United States and I hope we'll get there really soon with more testing available I, I've talked about various efforts to increase testing we've got to do that we've got to trace contacts with people these things are key until we have an effective treatment and until there's a vaccine in order for us to safely or within reasonable levels of risk of safety to have as much economic activity as we possibly can we can't go into hibernation and hide from this month after month after month or if we did that we actually will have economic problems the kind that the headline writers are writing about so I'm a big believer in us using methodology to make sure that we open up and we continue to open up activities in a way that creates as much of a safe zone as we possibly can and we are answering your questions that you're posting for us at clark.com slash ask with producers Kim and Joel asking your questions and who's up first I am up first this is Kim and this is from Scott he says thanks to your show I was able to secure a PPP loan today our child daycare business is now saved from going under. Well, it, congratulations. I know. He, I don't know what you give us credit for, but <laughs> well, it's he, great news. He actually had a very specific example. He says it couldn't have happened without you because he banks at one of the big four banks and they weren't able to do anything for him. Per your advice, he secured the loan through a smaller local bank. So thank you. Moving on. Wait, no, I'm not ready to move okay, on. Okay, what you got? Take the lesson from that that you fire that giant monster mega bank and move your company's business to that small local bank that actually cared about you even though you weren't even a customer totally and deserves his business now right agreed all right he goes on to say now my question is now what i'm currently operating at about 25 percent capacity with about one third of my employees I know that PPP forgiveness requires me to pay the other two-thirds, but how is that fair to the individuals who are actually working? I can probably cut my working employees' hours to bring some others back on, but I definitely don't have enough work for all of them. How best would you guide me through this? This is an impossible conundrum, and that's why a number of businesses have decided that they are foregoing the PPP because they can't figure out how to equitably pay everybody 
when not everybody can work. So I, so I read a suggestion just, um, or, oh, like on the week, yeah, this past weekend, that I thought was very clever. And it's that you bring back all your workers, but you give everybody partial hours so that everybody is back at work, but you pay them full pay, which is the purpose of the PPP was to get money into workers' hands and to keep them on payroll. So what you would do temporarily is you have 25% of work, so you rotate people and have each person work, um, what would that be? It would be five days every four weeks? Yeah, that would be right. So that you get everybody back in there, but you pay them 100% of pay. So everybody shares the hours of work, and everybody gets a full paycheck. And that's how you keep everybody fresh, everybody involved, and you're able to fully qualify for the loan forgiveness under the PPP. The design of the PPP was not that everybody would have work to do. It's that everybody would be paid by their employer so the business would still be whole once the clouds of coronavirus lift. Joel? Clark Allen says, I keep hearing talk of a second larger stimulus payment or even a potential of social security payments being increased by about 200 bucks a month. Is there a potential multi-month stimulus payment in the future? And what do you know about the potential validity of something like this happening? I have never heard a time in a crisis where there was more disagreement and confusion among members of both political parties about what should be done next or if Congress should just watch for a while, see how things go before deciding what would be next, which would be we have the 3.5 that was passed last week of the coronavirus stimulus. So the fourth stimulus bill, whatever it would be, there's no consensus about what that should contain if there should in fact be one how big it would be and so it's too hard right now to predict the way this is going to play and so i think you're going to see a delay in several weeks before congress coalesces around any kind of next fourth act and i think the reason is is they don't know what the most effective thing is to do what's actually worked to help steady the economy. There's also um, a minority of members right now in the House and the Senate that are becoming more worried about the amount of debt that the country is taking on right now. And that also is putting a little sand in the gears on what would come next. So for right now, assume that what we have is what we're going to have. And remember, a lot of what we have hasn't actually worked yet. Uh, we have so many people, as I talked about earlier, who are attempting to apply for unemployment, who've not received any money yet. Um, we've got a lot of businesses that, even if they've been approved for the PPP, have no money yet. So there's a desire of elected officials to watch and wait and see how the money that will flow into people's pockets and into Main Street businesses, how that actually is going to work and how much it will help prop up the economy. Kim? 
Stephen says, I live in an apartment complex that offers several amenities, all of which have been unavailable for the past four to six weeks due to the COVID-19 social distancing orders. Should I expect any sort of a discount, refund, or credit from my landlord slash apartment complex for those amenities not being available? If so, what should my approach be to address the situation? Okay, so this is one that we're prepared for because we've had this question in the past pre-coronavirus. So the deal is, unless your lease for your apartment complex specifically um, points out these amenities as part of your lease, then it's likely not to. Only if it did include those as part of what you were paying for with your rent payment, would you be entitled to any amount of money as a discount on your rent. So generally, the amenities are shown in a colorful brochure or when you look online at an apartment complex when they're pitching you why you should live there. And in that pitch, they'll show beautiful pictures of the fitness center and the pool and whatever else they got going on there. And that that come on, that solicitation has been shown in court case after court case not to matter in terms of what you actually pay for rent. It's what attracted you there in part, but it's not considered to be what you're getting as fair exchange for your rent. Sorry to have to tell you that. Joel? Clark Kenneth says, my wife and I both have life insurance and we're expecting a baby girl in September. If Congratulations. Right, yeah, and it says if something were to happen to both my wife and, and I, can we leave the life insurance to our daughter or would we have to leave it to an adult? You can leave it. Um, you can't do anything till your daughter's born in most states, um, although there are lawyers who could probably write language that would cover a future child, but normally it would be something that at the time of this great event and September when your baby's born, that you could uh, put a trust, uh, the beneficiary of the life insurance being a trust for the benefit of your child or in your will, you can put in language that the proceeds go into of your estate, including what your life insurance would be, would go for the benefit of your child through a trust and you would name normally a trustee. So in that case, you would make the beneficiary of your life insurance your estate, first your spouse, then second would be your estate potentially. And this would be a a case where if this is what you're really intending for you to talk to a lawyer about making sure that you designate properly so that your wishes are in fact carried out, you need both a trustee and a trust, which are very simplified arrangements. It's just the complicating factor is your child's not born yet. And that's why this is a case that does call for a lawyer who does wills, estates, and trusts to make sure your wishes are properly executed. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. 
Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you've got a question for me, please post it at Clark.com ask. And producers Kim and Joel are alternating asking your questions for you. And Kim, who do you have a question from? This is from Ken, and he says, the travel agency that I recently booked a trip through is offering to reschedule canceled trips without change fees, but they are not offering refunds. Is there any way to force them to refund my money instead of rescheduling it? I'm thinking about buying a new home, and I could really use that money for new flooring. So this has been a problem throughout the travel industry since really the beginning of March that uh, think about what we've been through with airlines who are legally required to make refunds for canceled flights and have in many cases defied the law and only reluctantly made refunds to people who've been very persistent and insistent with travel agencies or tour operators it's been much more difficult in the event that the trip you were going to take no longer exists you were due a refund on the other hand if you cancel the trip by your own choosing then the travel supplier is allowed to tell you well you lost all your money or well as a courtesy because of coronavirus we'll give you a credit towards future travel so really the distinction that matters is if the trip canceled on you instead of you canceling the trip how you enforce that is something that I'd say a few million people would like to know in the United States is how do you actually enforce your rights when a travel supplier has canceled the travel and the thing to look at is do you have to file an arbitration if you do do that if you paid with a credit card dispute the charge with your credit card company and if you're allowed to sue as soon as the courts reopen file an action against the travel agency or supplier in small claims court any of those would be the outcome the the steps i would recommend but absolutely disputing the credit card comes first the podcast normally would end here but because of the unusual circumstances we're in we have additional content that we recorded earlier today that i'd like you to have access to and this will continue day by day as long as the events warrant now we've got huge numbers of people who are going to get their stimulus money by check instead of some form of direct deposit and it's going to take believe it or not five months for the federal government to print all those paper checks and mail them out now, that doesn't mean 
everybody waits five months. It's kind of a lucky or unlucky lottery when your check's printed, how quickly you'll get it versus being further down the queue and your check coming later. So they will come who knows when between now and September, it looks like, when you're getting a paper check. A lot of the people getting paper checks are getting a paper check because you don't have a bank account. So PayPal has set up a special procedure where you can deposit that check into what's known as a PayPal Cash Plus account, and there's no fee at all. So as long as you wait for the check to go through normal clear, you will get, if you're getting a $1,200 check, you will get that $1,200 and have $1,200 to spend with a PayPal account. Now, that doesn't work for everybody. So the next cheapest alternative I know of is Walmart. Walmart is allowing you to deposit, to cash that check, or to put it on a Walmart money card, which is like a, a stored value card, and you pay $8 to put that check on one of those cards. So it's not free, but instead of $1,200, you'd get, well, $1,192, a lot better than it would be at a lot of check cashers or other places like that. One other idea, a local supermarket may be willing to cash these checks at no fee just because they want your business. And here's something else I wanted to talk about today. So if you've listened to me over the last couple of months about coronavirus, you know I have an obsession with testing. Then the countries that have been able to keep economies open and still reduce the amount of people who get coronavirus and the amount who die from it, it all starts with testing. And we have, well, we've been behind on our game with it. But I want to tell you that we're getting better at this and it's going to ramp up a lot during the month of May. One of the key places that's going to be available is CVS. CVS, which is trying to transition its entire operation into health centers from traditional drugstores, is going to have week by week more and more places and by late May will have a thousand CVS locations spread around the country and available strategically in metro areas where you'll be able to get free testing and it will generally be drive-up testing that you schedule online at cvs.com. You'll get tested in the parking lot or at a drive through window. You don't go in the store. This is outside. And their strategic plan is to be able to do just in CVS stores, or actually outside CVS stores, a million and a half tests every month. Now, Walgreens has announced that it's setting up testing as well, and they're going to be able to do 200,000 tests a month. So they're going to have it available in drive-throughs 
and all but one state must be a state that there are no Walgreens. But the fact that these two drugstore chains are getting into this as a way for people to be tested routinely and for free is really, really a positive development because it will be the first part of what's so key to us managing coronavirus as a disease until there are effective treatments or the vaccine that people are working on like mad. So having the test following that, it then involves you being isolated and then notifying your the people you would have come into contact with. On that effort, Apple and Google amazingly continue to work very well together, have addressed some of the concerns people have about privacy, and will have an automated way where you'll be able to notify everybody you have come close to over the last period, even people you don't know that you just passed by. This is the Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.